Okay, all right, folks, welcome to the podcast. Um, we are. Is this technically in college? The city limits of college section. We're, we're in Burleson we're, County. Bur- Burleson County, off Highway Sixty, across the River Bridge. We're six right. six miles from campus. Six miles from uh, Aggie Land, outside of uh, College Station here, and we're at the Aquaculture Research Center. Aquacultural Research and Teaching Facility. And teaching a facility. And the acronym is what? ARTF. ARTF. Mm-hmm. I was thinking ARC for some reason. Ar- it used to it be. It used to be. It used to be. Okay. A good while ago. Okay. okay. I couldn't remember where I got that from. All right. So I'm here with Brian Ray, Dr. Gail Gatlin, and uh, Dr. Todd Sink. So let's let's start with you, Brian. Quick introduction background, then we'll go, go to Dr. Gatlin. Uh, thanks, Shane. Uh, my name is Brian Ray. Um, Started my career with Coastal Fisheries Division of uh, TPWD. That's where I kind of ran across uh, Shane. Been here at Texas A&M now since uh, 2006, and I'm the facility manager of the Aquacultural Research and Teaching Facility here. Yeah, you left, and then I yeah. showed up, I think. Yeah, a few way. months apart, probably. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Dr. Gatlin. Okay, my name is Delbert Gatlin. I'm a, a professor and associate uh, department head in wildlife and fishery sciences at Texas A&M, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Been here for 31 years and uh, work in the area of fish nutrition in, in particular, but I teach courses in general aquaculture and then aquaculture nutrition and disease management. And the research program is primarily based on nutrition and feeding of various aquatic species. I've got my PhD from Mississippi State University where I studied nutrition and biochemistry, specifically with fish, and uh, again, I've been here for 31 years. Time is flying by while we're having fun, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And Todd? Uh, I'm Todd Sink. Um, I am a, uh, my, my title seems to keep growing uh, every year here. I'm the Associate Department Head for Extension and uh, Associate Professor in the Wildlife and Fisheries Department. And I'm also the uh, Aquaculture and Fisheries Extension Specialist here at Texas A&M. Um, I've been here since 2013. Uh, my specialties uh, are basically deal with uh, reproductive physiology and new species development for p- culture. Um, I started off, uh, got my uh, undergraduate degree at Purdue University, and I kind of had a little bit of a nutrition background there, like Dr. Gatlin, and then uh, got my Ph.D. at the University of Tennessee, where I specialized in fish stress and disease physiology, and uh, I still have some of that disease aspect. I still run the Aquatic Diagnostics Laboratory here, which is the only disease diagnostic laboratory in the state. In the state. Yep. Well, we'll jump into into what you've got going on because um, we got a little timeline issue, and I didn't mean to leave Drew out. We got Drew Adams, CCA Texas Assistant Director. He's here. He's going to jump on the mic when when Todd has to leave. <laughs> He's giving me the uh, head shake. <laughs> All right, Todd. So um, let's just jump into some of the research projects you've got going on. You gave us a great tour. You and Brian, we appreciate that. Uh, no problem. We got the tour of the grounds here. And, and we got to see some of the work that you're doing with uh, Atlantic Croker. We looked at uh, some facilities you used for southern flounder and spotted sea trout, and then you showed us uh, some of the copia rootstock you've got. So I guess maybe project by project, uh, just run through them real quick at the uh, fifth grade level. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I, I guess we'll start with the most complicated one to explain, and we'll see if we can uh, quickly summarize it down to the fifth grade level. Um, so a, a lot of the work I do um, is both in conjunction with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department to help improve their stock enhancement programs, and at the same time, I'm also helping to improve culture of these species for commercial food production to take pressure off those wild stocks and to give producers um, a, a 
better way to be more profitable on their farms and, and, and grow higher value um, fish species. And so kind of the first project that we talked about today with Shane was uh, some of my work that I've done with Texas Parks and Wildlife on uh, their flounder brood stock for their stock enhancement program. And so um, without going into all the science and stuff, um, basically there are some issues with uh, flounder stocks up and down the Texas coast in which the sex ratios of the fish are being skewed towards males um, for, for various environmental and regulation reasons. And so we have these populations where you might have uh, 10 or a dozen or more males per every female that's out there in the wild. And so in order to better improve the stock enhancement program, the way you make the most impact on that population is you release a lot of females. Um, one male can fertilize a lot of females in the wild, and so uh, releasing males isn't making a big contribution. It's those females that actually make all the offspring that are the next generation. And so if we can increase the amount and number of females we release each year, we're going to grow that population much uh, better. And so one of the ways that we look at um, trying to get around some of those um, issues with uh, the sex ratios is we kind of look at the ways in which flounder are their genders determined because in fish it's very plastic it's not like most animals when they're born they're genetically a, fe a male or a female but that doesn't mean that's what they're going to end up as as adults um, there are other factors that determine whether they become a male or a female, um, such as uh, certain uh, steroids, steroidal hormones that are circulating in their sex uh, hormones, um, stress hormones such as cortisol, or um, in f flatfish in particular, temperature is a really big issue. And so for southern flounder, when they're reared at about 23 degrees uh, Celsius, that's about when you get an even mix, half female and half male, just like they are genetically. Um, if you culture them a, a few degrees warmer or a few degrees cooler than that, you end up with predominantly all males. And so a large part of our research is we're looking at how to improve broodstock through some genetic um, uh, factors that we can manipulate the females in. And we're not talking about like uh, inserting new genes and those types of things. We're talking about working with the natural genetics of the female and so that we can improve the odds and ways in which uh, the number of females that are available for release through the Parks and Wildlife Stocking Program. Um, you got any questions about that? You, you got no. the better run through and I just <laughs> want to make sure that no, no, I didn't leave out too much there. No, it's clear. It's, okay. It's, it's clear so far. All right. Um, uh, some of the other stuff that we're doing is uh, uh, this is where I really first started working with Texas A&M when I was at uh, the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff back in 2006-2007. I actually started working with Dr. Gatlin on a joint project for the Southern Regional Aquaculture Center. Um, I know there's probably a lot of fishermen out there that are listening right now that have um, went out on a nice spring day to go catch a bunch of trout and they hit bait stand after bait stand and you can't find any live croaker anywhere, right? Well, um, or, or if the croaker, if you can find them, you know, they've been trawled and they're really beat up, they're half dead, they don't live long, not good stuff. And so we actually um, started looking at culturing uh, some of these marine bait fish species so that we could provide a year-round stable supply of product that is the correct size that the fishermen want at the time they want it. And our product can, that we can deliver is 
oftentimes superior to any of the wild stuff because we treat it really with kid gloves. I mean, we take good care of it. It hasn't been trawled. We do everything to ensure that it's delivered there alive. It's a very lively, healthy, well-fed bait. And so um, uh, we like to think that you probably catch a few more fish out of those cause just because they're going to be more lively on the hook. And so a lot of my work has been on reproduction and developing that industry here in Texas and helping uh, some of our producers develop hatcheries for that species and start to grow them. Well, I'll tell you, on, on the subject of croaker, a lot of our guys, a lot of our guys are, are honestly, I'll just tell you, they're opposed to using them just because they think it's a, it's a, it's an unfair advantage. But then a, a, a number of them want to see croaker back as a, as a uh, something go out and catch. Oh yeah, you know they want to, they want to be able to have that fishery back in Texas. So it's an inter- interesting notion that. Um, that croaker is a viable aquaculture species and you go down several different avenues with it whether you use it as a bait or whether you try to use it to supplement wild stocks it's it's neat to see that you can establish a hatchery system to do that it's it's also got that kind of third dimension that i didn't bring it up where, where um, i figured this was mainly about fishing but uh the other use for it it's really a dual purpose bait or a, a purpose aquaculture species in that um, uh, it can be grown commercially too we can yep. get them to about a pound in a year which is a, a fairly large size croaker from what you catch from the wild and a lot of people say that the the fillet have a, kind of a mild sweet flavor to it and so it is a popular food oh, species it. as yeah, well for sure and, uh, uh, I will admit that uh, a few of those fish that uh, we've uh, <laughs> Grown may not have made it on the end of a hook. They may have ended up in a, a deep fryer somewhere. But yeah, yeah, it's, those are some good fish to have. If I catch one on a lure or whatever, I get excited about you know if I catch a croaker that's deep, the big large one, yeah. enough to fillet. I'm like bonus that's, fish. That's that's the huh. best fish of the day sometimes. Yeah, um, I, and I do realize that some people have strong feelings about using live bait, um, and and. And that's fine. I mean, I mainly use artificials as well, but not everyone has the same level of fishing ability, and some people do rely on that, um, especially a lot of uh, uh, out-of-towners that might be right, coming into sure. the uh, Texas yeah. tourism industry, <laughs> and we want to support, you know, those um, fishing guides and stuff that have to take, you know, uh, Joe Jack from uh, Central Michigan that doesn't know what a croaker or a spotted sea trout look like. No, and I, so, get yeah. I get it. I got a buddy that's... that's um, I'm making mad when I say this, but I'm like, man, I just want people to fish. I don't care what they use to catch the fish. I just want them to go out and have a good time. And, uh, you know, you're right. When you get people from out of town that never put a hook through a bait or don't know anything about casting a, a rod, um, that's a good avenue to take for sure. Yeah, and I mean, uh, it, it's beneficial to support, you know, um, all aspects of our sport fishing community here because it is such an economic boon to the state of Texas in terms of the amount of fishing revenue that's generated and spent, um, you know, through all the numerous outlets, you know, going through the hotel industries, the service industries, restaurants, sporting goods. So, um, And it's it, a better way to get them than drawing the bays or, or, or trapping them out of the It's much bay less, bay, yeah, sure. it's much less destructive to the environment, yeah. and, and you kill a lot less animals i mean our goal is to keep them alive in culture we don't want to kill anything so uh um yeah you're not getting all those uh, additional aquatic animals that you're going to catch in the crawl crawl that are are just going to end up dead so um but yeah all right didn't mean to distract you on that what else what else we got going here (laughs) um uh well uh i I guess i'll go ahead and just jump over to uh 
the cobia. Um, uh, you guys had a look like you had a pretty good time feeding uh, the cobia. Um, for those out there listening that don't know, um, we are uh, doing some reproductive work with cobia, and so we have a couple different size classes of fish. Um, we got a big tank of brood stock that is um, most of them are between the 35 and 40 pound range, and so we'd like to hand feed them. And, and uh, uh, we had uh, Shane uh, out here. Uh, we kind of had to warn him to keep your hands clear of the tank first because they will eat your hand. Um, but uh, they're really really cool interesting animals and we're looking at many different aspects in terms of uh, cobia production uh, through multiple avenues a stock enhancement program um, it would be really cool to start but currently texas um, does not have a stock enhancement program for cobia the only state that does is south carolina um, so we would like to build those relationships possibly with parson wildlife and look at some stock enhancement in the future but it's also an excellent excellent aquaculture species as a food fish um, it's an amazing animal uh, they can grow from a little larvae to 12 pounds in the first year just phenomenal growth it's you're going to be hard-pressed to find another fish that can do that we can feed them almost all plant-based diets so we're not feeding any fish meal to them we're not harvesting those resources from the ocean um, it's going to take a lot of pressure off wild stocks, you know, rather than people going out and catching those big 50, 60, 70 pound females um, because they want some fish to take home. Hey, you can go catch that nice big fish. Go ahead and let it back now. Take a picture or two. And then you can drive to your local restaurant and get some farm raised cobia and, and kind of leave that wild stock alone, those big, big females for other people to catch and to help the population out there. And I don't want to get too technical uh, with uh, the reproductive work, but basically what it boils down to is, is we're looking at using some uh, hormones that are produced uh, naturally within fish. They're uh, gonadotropin hormones, which um, help in the ovulation of eggs. And so all it is is we're basically um, in captivity. Uh, fish don't always norm naturally spawn during their normal spawning season um, just because they don't have the environmental cues there that they do in the wild. And so we're looking at using some of these various different types and delivery systems of hormones in order to get those fish to spawn in captivity so that we have fingerlings for stock enhancement programs in aquaculture. If anyone wants to see a fish with some personality, they need to come see some some uh, feed-trained cobia. Because they're, <laughs> they're just like puppy dogs. They yeah, they on top and eat out of your hands. You know, cobia are interesting um, in that uh, a lot a lot of fishery managers don't really have a good pulse on to what's going on with the natural stocks, at least in the Gulf of Mexico, and then and a lot of fishermen on the, on the Eastern Gulf, fishing guides mostly, are saying, "Hey, there's something wrong with the stock. We're not seeing the cobia we used to see." And then the guys in the Western Gulf are are still seeing some of them. But the Gulf Council just recently increased the size limit. On, on Kobe, I think it went to 36 inches for clink. It was 37, I believe. 37, yeah, was it 33 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it went up a couple of inches. Yeah, and that was just in response to what anglers are saying and talking about. So, um, I mean, that that notion that, you know, something needs to be done and we need to be looking at the species is certainly valid. And uh, I think what you guys are doing can, can be applied not only to the food market, but also uh, to help, like you said, with maybe stock enhancement and help fishery managers think of other solutions to try to help the stock. And, and most people don't realize that there's actually four different stocks of cobia in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, our stock over here in Texas is part of the western stock, and it's it's unique from some of the other stocks in terms of uh, reproductive uh, ability. Um, 
they actually spawn less frequently than all the other stocks on the uh, eastern uh, Gulf and even the Atlantic stocks. Um, they uh, spawn uh, every seven to twelve days versus every five to seven during the spawning season for the rest of the stocks. So we don't generate quite the numbers of recruitment that some of those other stocks do, and that's more the reason it's important to start looking at what we have over here or the western stock we have in texas could be one of the faster diminish, diminishing stocks if we don't start to uh take care of it a little better are they are they summer spawners what's their spawning um they will actually start spawning in typically uh if it's a warm year late april but it's generally may through august and so they cereal over yeah and so they'll spawn every uh our western stock will spawn every seven to twelve days yeah. from basically may through august okay um, and, and you mentioned trout, that you, you ran a yep. trout, um, trout. What was that study for? Well, that, that was uh, kind of an interesting one. Um, in, in terms of whether we want to do a stock enhancement program to um, uh, build the fishery or we want to produce more food fish through aquaculture, um, it, the really the limitation that we have right now in our marine uh, or, or at least our warm water marine species, I don't want to include salmon in there, but uh, uh, it's just producing enough fingerlings in order to have enough to release or enough to grow. We just simply don't have the capabilities in most cases. Red drum is really kind of the shining example where we can really produce a lot of them on demand. And as Brian pointed out even earlier, even then we still have a lot of supply shortages. Um, one of the major limitations in that bottleneck is um, the fact that most of these species, they we can't, as soon as they... Uh, hatch out we can't just start feeding them an artificial diet they just won't accept it they have to have some type of live food organism some type of zooplankton and most of them require several different types of zooplankton and so that means we have to become not only experts in fish culture we have to become experts in uh, marine microalgae culture and zooplankton culture and all these other things and you can have more than half your facility dedicated just to producing the live food to feed to the fish um, we kind of started looking at a, a different take on it. One of the uh, best available resources to a lot of these uh, marine producers um, are their saltwater ponds that they already have that they're growing fish in. Every day they're feeding those fish, so every day those ponds are getting fertilized with phosphorus and nitrogen when they feed the fish. And so if you've ever looked at a culture facility, most of the water is very green. That's all the algae content in there, and it has huge, huge numbers of zooplankton in there. And so the question is, those zooplankton are what the larval fish eat. How do we get those zooplankton and concentrate them in an effective manner in order to feed our fish so we don't have to do all this live food culture? Well, we kind of engineered a system that uses a, it, it's a fully automated system. It costs less than $8,000 to put together a system. Um, it basically filters out the correct size of zooplankton to feed those larval fish at each size stage as they grow. We can change those filters, and it harvests all that food um, potential that's out there in those ponds, and it concentrates them in a collector where we can enrich those foods because um, when we're feeding those live foods, the live foods are basically an envelope. The animal itself doesn't have a lot of nutrition. The nutrition is what's in the animal's gut, what it's been eating and that's what we're feeding the fish and so we can actually feed those organisms once we've harvested them some enrichment to add things like proteins or lipids that those larvae need and make a really complete diet and so we've uh, 
did some trials with uh, spotted sea trout here. Uh, once again, Texas Parks and Wildlife helped us out with some of those uh, uh, larvae, and uh, we had really, really good results. Um, we The fish grew just as well, um, and survival was just as good as those that we cultured using the traditional intensive food um, culture methods. And we actually had better um, survival, more fish produced than the standard pond production uh, that is used right now. And uh, it's used by most producers and even Parks and Wildlife uh, uses a, a standard pond culture procedure right now for a lot of their larval fish. Yeah. And so we've been able to improve that quite a bit for a relatively cheap system. It's easy to clean, easy to maintain, fully automated, and it's, it's pretty cheap. So you kind of envision a, a system that, that farmers can just trailer behind a, a mule or a tractor and move around their facility from, from one pond to the next? Or? We, we actually are developing two different models of the system. One is um, a large-scale in-hatchery system that will actually have a series of uh, flexible lines that can be shortened and lengthened and moved from pond to pond, mm -hmm. and it directs to a large unit in the hatchery. And the other one actually is a trailer-based system. It's all mounted on a 16-foot uh, flatbed trailer that they can hook up behind their ATV or mule, like you said, and they can go find the ponds with the most... Uh, productivity of those zooplankton in it and use those ponds as their their main food source for their and who's applied production. for the patent uh no <laughs> one has no one has applied for a patent yet <laughs> just curious well do you have anything else you want to share i know you got to bounce here pretty quick uh i think i'll leave it with that i've probably talked enough and probably confused enough people at this point <laughs> i'm pretty good about that no but, i think uh, we got it we're gonna make okay. uh, we're gonna make flounder all females we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna uh make croaker something we can buy in the supermarket and uh you know, supplement bait stands, and we're going to uh, uh, make our uh, our rice cakes that we feed to our to our uh, larval fish a little more uh, hearty. Yeah, a little more, a little more nutrient dense. And we're going to save the cobia. Yep, <laughs> we're, we're just going to do it all. You know, I, I mean, that's just this week. Who knows what we'll be doing next week, right? right. <laughs> well, I, we, I know I enjoyed the two. I know Drew, Drew did as well. It's, it's neat to see this uh, your your work and the uh, research that you're doing. So. Well, keep, thank keep you for coming out and visiting the facility. We appreciate it. Well, if, if anybody, I mean, do you mind sharing a way that folks can get in touch with you? If they want to learn more about the research, how, how should they do that? Yeah, you can contact me directly. Um, all my And just in case you don't have a pen and can't write all this down real quick, all my information and Dell's information is available on our departmental website. Uh, it's the Wildlife and Fishery Sciences Department at Texas A&M. You can find our information there. And for those of the, you that need to um, email me uh, directly, my email is real simple. It's just my name, Todd, T-O-D-D, dot sink, S-I-N-K, just like the kitchen sink, at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Any advice for kids wanting to get into fishery science these days? Um, start early and pursue your education through um, at least the master's level. Um, really, any more are... are um, industry is getting so technologically advanced and so educationally driven that really most uh, entry-level jobs even will be a master's degree requirement and that's that doesn't really matter if you want to be just a freshwater fisheries biologist for your local state game and fish agency or you want to one day be the director of coastal fisheries for texas parks and wildlife the minimum there is going to be a master so it is going to take some uh, additional long-term education and uh Honestly, uh, it's not a bad field to get into because where else do you get to play with fish? I don't get to do it every day. Um, we are stuck in the office sometimes, but hey, at least I get to go to work sometimes. And 
you know, it's really rough when we have to go out and collect brood stock for work. You know, <laughs> they get paid to go for a day of fishing. So yeah. <laughs> there's not too many jobs where you can say you can do that. Well, great. That's good advice. Appreciate that. Well, You're thanks. Welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to have to jump That's out okay. here. That's okay. That's okay. Drew, you're in. Come All on, right. you might have a question that <laughs> no one else can think of. I really can't. Come on. <laughs> I can't provide help. <laughs> Drew's going to jump in. He doesn't want to. But well. All right. So we uh, thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. So, um, Dr. Gatlin, let's jump back to the beginning of, of your career to kind of talk through um, – how you got to, to where you are today, what got you interested in, in nutrition, nutritional research, and fishery science in general? Okay, well, I cultured fish growing up at home, in home aquaria early on, and so that really got my interest sparked in terms of doing work in the area of fish culture, and I actually didn't mention earlier, but I got my undergraduate degree at Texas A&M and actually found an aquaculture program, an aquaculture tract in our Department of Wildlife and Fisheries as a entering freshman and uh, what year did you graduate i graduated in 1980 so i entered in 76 and found uh, this program in aquaculture and so probably one of the few freshmen that came in and said this is what i want to do and followed it throughout my undergraduate career i ended up uh, doing an undergraduate thesis project at this facility with uh, Dr. Bob Stickney, who mm -hmm. uh, previously was the director of Sea Grant, and prior to that was a professor in the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And at the time that I was doing that undergraduate project, I thought I wanted to work in fish diseases. And he convinced me emphatically that he didn't want to work on diseases out here, that that was not a good thing, and that um, I needed to consider some other area, like maybe fish nutrition. And so I um, actually started a project on uh, lipid nutrition of channel catfish for my undergraduate thesis and actually started um, appreciating the importance of nutrition as it relates to fish health, productivity, and of course the cost associated with producing fish intensively that's you know largely based on the cost of the diets to feed them. So I um, really got interested in fish nutrition. I was able to publish that uh, senior honors thesis in the Transactions of the American Fishery Society and thought, well, okay, I want to continue to pursue this area. And uh, it turned out that I was interested in either going to Auburn or to Mississippi State uh, to pursue a graduate degree. And it turned out that um, Mississippi State had an interdisciplinary program in nutrition. And the head of the department at the time was uh, Robert Wilson, who was a person, he was a trained biochemist that worked in catfish nutrition. And he uh, offered me an opportunity to do a straight shot PhD from the from my bachelor's degree, and the other alternative was uh, Tom Lovell at Auburn University, who was a fantastic fish nutritionist, but had literally dozens of graduate students, and um, he had wanted me to pursue the master's mm -hmm. and then move on. And I so I ended up going with uh, Mississippi State, and really appreciated the opportunity to to work in that environment to be somewhat closely associated with the catfish industry and seeing the development of it at the time. and That was kind of in its heyday, right? Right, really? yeah. So um, had an opportunity. And of course, um, there was a lot of interest in trying to provide support for that industry, and that's why Dr. Wilson started working in the area and was, uh, again, one of the pioneers in, in fish nutrition or catfish nutrition in particular. So I've continued on that track and uh, spent a short period of time um, 
at Mississippi State in a postdoctoral capacity. Um, Dr. Wilson went to Scotland for a sabbatical, and I stayed on and kept the program going, so to speak. And um, then I, after he returned, I had my first faculty appointment at the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, and had an opportunity to to you know, develop a program on my own and and I uh, was there for only about a year and a half and I had an opportunity to, to come back to Texas. I am a native Texan and grew up in the Dallas area, a little town called Lancaster. And uh, so I came back to College Station in 1987. And that was a faculty position? Mm-hmm, yep. And so went through the, the tenure track um, from assistant professor to associate to full professor and have um, been enjoying what I've been doing uh, <laughs> each and every day. I really enjoy it. So... You would you say 31, mm-hmm. 31 years mm-hmm. here at here at A and M. Yep. And then combined, so you've been in in the work of you know studying uh, fish nutrition for closer to forty yeah years. Almost. I would suspect. Yeah. Is that close? Uh huh. So would you say that you probably have more experience right now in the field than with fish nutrition? Then where does that rival? Where does that stand a- across? Well, let me let Brian, because I don't think you're going to tell He's pretty humble. He's, he's yeah. pretty humble. That's right. Yeah, I would, so, I would consider Dr. Gallon one, one of the leading authorities in fish nutrition. Especially. That's what I wanted to get across. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, it's, so no it's, doubt. It's, it's, it's great to be here, and it's, um, it's a privilege to get to talk to, to you guys and to golly between both of you guys. You've been doing uh, fisheries research for how long were you at, you were at Sea Center for? Yeah, I started uh, at the Sea Center, yeah, 98, I guess. Yeah. I was there for the, the first uh, pond run. I wasn't there when the doors opened to the, the visitor center, but uh, started there with Coastal. Uh, so you got 20 years at least. Yeah, right around. Yeah, right around. Yeah, right around. Wow. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Well, pretty impressive. <clears throat> so you, you do so much. You've got so many um, projects that run through here, so it's gonna it's kind of difficult for you to talk about what what you do but it, it, is it accurate to say that you're trying to formulate diets that are the most efficient and that kind of move us away from uh, look just look at alternatives to, to fish meal to to uh, proteins coming out of the ocean we want to try to supplement that with with something else right, we want to lessen our dependence on those marine derived resources and that has been one of the major focuses of the program over the years is to particularly with um, redfish or red drum um, evaluate and develop a number of different feed ingredients that can be used to again lessen the dependence on fish meal and fish oil and and make better use of some of the resources that are available so yeah that's one of the major focuses of the program another one related to to red drum is again when i arrived here in 87 that was just at the time that there was a strong interest in starting to culture the fish and also develop the commercial aquaculture industry. So we launched into determining a lot of the basic nutritional requirements of the red drum. Um, and there's almost 40 different individual nutrients and we've defined or quantified almost all of those individual nutrient requirements for the red drum so that we can formulate a diet from ingredients that are alternative to fish meal and fish oil and still meet those specific metabolic requirements. And so that, again, has been another major focus of the program. And it's targeted not only red drum, but hybrid striped bass. Uh, we, again, continue to work with some other species like um, tilapia and, and uh, channel catfish, but certainly the red drum and the hybrid striped bass, both being fish that are produced not only for stock enhancement, but also for food production. Yep. 
are ones that, that follow a bit of a similar track in, in terms of our program. So how, do, how, does it, how does it typically, what's the typical situation when you uh, try to, how do you get, well, how do you get funding for a project normally? And, um, you know, how can folks, if they want to help support that, how can they get involved in, in doing that? Okay. Well, there are a few different means of trying to secure funding to do the kind of work that we do. A lot of it is based on grants or contracts where we have an idea that we propose to a funding agency and we we run the gamut from some of the federal agencies like uh, NOAA or USDA that have specific grant programs that deal with certain aspects of aquaculture to some of the regional um, federal funding like the Southern Regional Aquaculture Center on down to uh, occasionally state programs like Texas Sea Grant or a lot of nowadays a lot of the the private entities that are producing products to support aquaculture are actually coming to us and wanting to have their products evaluated and, and assessed. So we, gener or we generate the research funding in a number of different yeah. modes. Do, do you have a support staff t to, to look at those things? Is that primary falling on, on your shoulders to apply for those grants <laughs> yeah. and, and, get, and bring that money in? Yeah, that's, that's one of the major tasks that uh, we deal with on a regular basis is um, trying to generate the funding that we need to support the the research that again is we feel is uh, instrumental in advancing aquaculture of of these different species in the state and so we spend a lot of time going after the the research funding and again most of the traditional sources of of support that we've had have come from granting or agencies that again are going to provide the support for those kinds of research activities um, on occasion we might find some um, group that's not necessarily directly um, selling a product or funding research in a in a in a real general sense that might have interest in supporting the work and, and certainly in those cases where we have um, entities that want to help support the program that that um, type of support does come in handy and can be directed to specific projects or specific types of, of activities I don't I think it's important to kind of hammer home how um, why the work that you do is significant because what's the number one or I think it's the number one cost the number one cost with with the, with the producer with the farmer goes into what definitely nutrition the right, feed, right? High, that's right the feeds up there yes um, so if you can improve your efficiency if you can cut down the amount of your inputs you're putting in to, to get that fish to whatever size you want to get it to it has an impact on your bottom line so sure. um, absolutely it and should I, be of interest to anyone that's involved in fishery science or fisheries management or aquaculture cause it and, makes and a to difference. lessen the environmental footprint you right. know to put to do more with less you know, yeah i think that's everybody's goal today how many how many students uh do you do you have out here right now conducting well not not here today yeah, but yeah, just yeah, in general yeah. under your in my, umbrella right yeah in my program i have uh, eight graduate students that are pursuing master's or phd degrees and one uh, research associate who helps coordinate some of the, the activities in our analytical lab on campus. So with Brian and Fernando, we've, we've got around a dozen or so um, people that are on staff. We also have um, from time to time visiting scientists that come in or visiting students that come come in and spend a short period of time in the program. So we we have a, um, a reasonably um, large staff for 
you know, focusing on the work that we do. But what's your cutoff line? You're like, okay, no more. I can't handle it. <laughs> no, <laughs> have I, you I mean, have you found it or? I <laughs> I haven't. Um, I mean, usually it's when you get close to ten or so graduate students, that gets a little much. But uh, I've had um, that number from time to time, and and seems to be something I can handle. I've I've had over the years probably. Um, around 55 or so students that have gotten their master's or PhD degree under my guidance. So wow. that's kind of a that's a um, reward of yeah. working in this position and having contacts with with students all over the world, and uh, many of whom have gone on to to important um, positions in state and federal agencies and private companies. Yeah, you're like the Nick Saban of Fisher. <laughs> 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 Well, it, it's been fun, and I I really enjoyed doing that, and of course having the opportunity to interact with them and and see the students develop professionally is it's got to be rewarding. It's a very rewarding aspect of not, the job. Not to mention maintaining the undergraduate course teaching responsibilities. So that's yeah. So that's that's good. I uh, what what courses are you teaching right now? I teach uh, this semester. I teach uh, aquaculture two, which is a, a course that I had to integrate fish nutrition and um, Fish health management. It's an upper-level undergraduate course, and uh, again, covers the first part of the course deals with nutrition, feeding, diet development, those kinds of aspects, and then the second half deals with disease diagnosis, uh, a general survey of disease-causing organisms in aquaculture and fisheries, and how you go about treating those. So, it's a it's an interesting course in that um, it covers two fairly distinct aspects, but there are some interrelationships between. Mm-hmm. Uh, nutrition and health as i've mentioned earlier and in fact some some uh, research that we have done for quite some time has looked at ways of improving the immunocompetence and the disease resistance of fish through dietary means so that that course actually uh, integrates some of the some of the research that we've been doing and and looking at nutrition and fish health yeah have you ever done any, any research out here that relates to human health? Like you do something with fish that you know can be applied to? We, when I first got here, we actually had a, my first federal grant was a USDA uh, special aquaculture research grant where we were um, wanting to enhance the nutritional value of catfish simply by feeding them more fish oil to increase their omega-3 fatty acids, which under normal conditions, it's not they're not particularly um, rich in mm-hmm. the omega-3 fatty acids like a lot of marine fish. And uh, we were able to do that quite uh, definitively. We tracked the fish over about a year and, um, again, looked at the fatty acid composition of the fish. We actually stored the fillets over a, a period of time to look at the oxidative stability of the fillets because usually with those longer-chain, highly unsaturated fatty acids, they're a bit more more volatile. But we actually could, could show stability over the course of like a six-month period. Uh, we actually had a... A trained taste panel that did the, <laughs> the organolectic. Actually, that was true. Not 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 us, uh, but others that actually were they hand battered and thrown into <laughs> the <frying> pan. <laughs> they were just microwaves. Okay. And, and uh, again, we we were actually looking for a level that could enhance the omega three fatty acids, but yeah. not have any objectionable flavors or odors, or again reduced stability in frozen storage. And and that that um, that particular project was was a very good success, but we. That's one where we didn't really get the the um, adoption by the industry because you know there's you know typically some other alternative lipids that are used in 
in uh, catfish. Of course, it's a fish that doesn't, its diet doesn't have a whole lot of lipid in it. Mm -hmm. And typically some of the, the rendered catfish oil or some other product is used to, to spray on the, the surface of the, of the catfish pellet. And you've got a relatively small amount of lipid endogenous in the diet. So, I mean, there, we did show that it could work. And with a, the appropriate niche market, you could probably, um, just like with the high omega-3 eggs, you could could uh, develop that into a specialized market and perhaps get a, a premium on the product. But again, the at least at that particular time, more of the industry was in the southeastern part of the U.S. and, and they weren't particularly interested in picking that part of the the research up and trying to incorporate into the commercial production. I get so mad at my wife when she buys those high omega three eggs. <laughs> That's five dollars for a dozen eggs. Yep. This one's two. Yeah. Um, explain to real, real quick. Explain to listeners uh, when when you go about doing a nutritional research project, how not how you're making the food, but basically you're taking you guys are taking raw materials and doing it most of it on a small scale at least everything the feedstuffs you're putting together here in-house mm -hmm. right i mean right. that's correct now, on the small scale uh, experiments some of the some of the indoor recirculating systems that don't require copious quantities of feed yeah we'll just uh, hand produce or cold press a pellet using some pretty basic uh, technology but we'll take raw, raw ingredients we do partner with uh, with the engineering department here on campus that has a food extrusion uh, program to make some bigger batch stuff or, or with other feed mills at times if we need to contract a, a, so a larger batch. But but most of the experimental diets start here, running them through a, a, Hobart, uh, a Hobart mixer just uh, just like you would in a kitchen. But uh, So Dr. Gatlin's writing the cookbook, <laughs> and you guys are the chefs. Yeah. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah. Make yeah. it happen. Yeah. <coughs> and, we, and we can do, uh, I mentioned those nutrient requirement studies with those we're Oftentimes, developing the diets that are chemically defined, we have a, a really good handle on all the specific nutrients, and we're typically just varying one nutrient, trying to quantify a specific requirement. So in those cases, we want to be able to have a very precise control over the formulation. Again, usually add incremental levels of one particular nutrient to the diet, feed those diets to replicate groups of fish in the controlled environment of the lab, and, and in a relatively short period of time, typically um, even within a month or two, you can see statistical differences in the growth response of the fish or their feed efficiency as a function of that one particular nutrient that you're varying. And our typical approach is to try to quantify the requirement, the minimum requirement for that particular nutrient. And doing that with young, rapidly growing fish is actually a conservative way to define that requirement. Typically, as the fish grow larger in size, they're their weight gain as a percent of their body weight goes down somewhat and so the requirement that we're determining with these really small fish tends to be a very conservative estimate and can be used then in formulating diets for commercial production and of course in the case of that commercial diet you're dealing with ingredients raw materials that are usually a bit more uh, complex and contain a number of different nutrients and so forth but we want to be able to to basically meet the nutrient requirements of the fish by knowing that requirement and then blending or complementing the different uh, raw materials that go into the practical feed stuff that ultimately becomes the, the commercial diet that is fed to the fish for production purposes. And that's oftentimes a moving target in the industry depending upon 
supply and, and cost of different ingredients. So I, I think knowing knowing alternatives that can be interchanged can help us keep the, the cost down, uh, you know, on feedstuffs. This is a pretty basic question, but for my protein source, which which plant-based material shows the most promise? Soy, I would and say. It's <laughs> it's probably one of the, the, the most readily incorporated into diets of, of different species. And, again, it does have a lot of, of good nutritional characteristics, but it uh, also is lacking a few things that, um, again, more traditional marine-derived proteins have. So we finished up a project just this past uh Actually, we sent in the final report in September, a uh, project that was funded by the, the by NOAA, the Salt and Stall Kennedy program, where we were taking soybean meal and uh, a corn gluten meal, two plant protein feedstuffs, and blending them with uh, fish processing waste from a fish processing plant, and actually capturing the the high omega three oils and the other proteins from the the fish carcass. And using a dry extrusion process, we're developing a, a protein-rich, omega-3 fatty acid-rich fish meal analog, so to speak, that compared extremely favorably with your more traditional fish meal like Menhaden. Could that be used as a as a growth tide or something you could just finish the fish off on as you're completing before they reach the market, as you're completing the trial? Both, both probably. Yeah. It, the, the one... Um, constraint at, in terms of being able to produce this type of product right now is having the the industry invest in the extrusion technology to do this but it's actually a relatively inexpensive dry extruder that's used to blend the fish processing waste with the plant feed stuff you do this dry extrusion which means basically you're using mechanical friction to generate heat which ultimately pasteurizes the product and uh, generates a lot of steam, so some of the moisture from the fish processing waste is actually lost as uh, steam. You do have to process or dry the product uh, one pass through a dryer to make it into a, a flowable um, preserve type product that then can be used and um, stored and then and, and used as needed to make fish diets. And again, at a pilot scale, we were able to do that quite efficiently. And again, compared to the fish mill, had um, basically the same uh, value in terms of its nutritional composition and its um, value to the fish so we feel like it's a, a, a really good alternative again there's probably still the need for the industry folks to to try to adapt this and the like the, some of the seafood processing plants are considering it as an option because again they're they're actually paying to have that processing waste removed from their facilities and in this case you could actually you could, make so a value-added what, product. What is the waste that you're, could you say? It's just the, 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 the racks. The carcass. The, carcass, and, yeah. the viscera and the racks mm-hmm. is basically fillet uh, processing waste. And, and then we looked, uh, some of the components we looked at, we looked at various components. Some of them came from farm sources and also some of them were from processing facilities that, that take care of commercially caught, wild, wild caught uh-huh. fish. So uh, we could utilize, maximize that, uh, so stuff that, that marine protein. Stuff that landfill year. Exactly. Yeah, or some yeah. other some other renderer that the, that these facilities are having to pay to come pick it up. You know, yeah, yeah, that we could we could Golly. have a value added product. Yeah. We think so. And there's and there's again a lot of these marine resources that are not being fully utilized. <coughs> that uh, if they are more effectively used, then it is going to lessen the dependence on the the wild stocks, which again are are just due to the growth of aquaculture worldwide are becoming more and more taxed and. Typically, with that increased demand, there's an increased 
cost associated with those marine resources. So being able to find these alternatives is, I feel, very important to be able to, again, increase the cost effectiveness of aquaculture and, again, be <coughs> just more uh, stewards of the environment. Yeah, to to yeah I just think that's something that, that you know, maybe we could talk about and help advocate for is the wise use of that product to go back into um, aquaculture yeah. Yeah. yeah and that that's um, again one of the other um, major research areas that we have another that I kind of alluded to earlier in terms of the the coursework is again the influence of diet on fish health and we do evaluate a number of different compounds that are commonly uh, available and can be used in the diet to enhance the immune response of the fish and protect them from um, pathogens and so forth. So that's another area that that uh, we pursue. The most uh, recent area of endeavor that we've developed is, uh, again, working with uh, larval fish nutrition. Uh, Todd mentioned some of the work that, that he's been doing with the live food harvesting system. We have worked with, with Parks and Wildlife the uh, uh, last couple of years with some of the uh, potential means of augmenting the, the live foods for flounder uh, larvae. And just recently we were awarded a grant from the Southern Regional Aquaculture Center to work on, again, enhancing the, the live foods and the transition feeds for larval flounder and red drum. We were going to be doing that work here in, in Texas. And then this collaboration is with uh, North Carolina State that's going to be working with striped bass larvae. So we're going to continue to, to work on uh, some nutritional aspects of, of um, larvae, uh, particularly the marine larvae, which, again, are the typically the most challenging yeah. ones to deal <laughs> with. Uh, we don't have too much trouble dealing with tilapia fry or catfish fry, but when you come to those marine larval fish, a bit more of a challenge. But we're, we're really looking forward to getting this project off the ground. Uh, we just, again, received notice of funding at the start of this fall semester back in I think it was the middle of September, so we're just now gearing up and getting ready to to, to launch that project. And it does have a a, a strong uh, complementary component at uh, the Marine Development Center mm -hmm. in, in Corpus. So we're going to actually, I was down there a couple weeks ago to visit with, with the staff down there and, again, work together with them to implement work with uh, the larval flounder and then um, transition to the, to the redfish yeah. this coming spring in summer. Yeah, they're winding up their redfish production right now and just getting into flounder. Great. So, yeah. 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 Excited about that work. Yeah, I, I definitely. I appreciate that. I mean, I grew up in a community that was largely ag-based. So uh, so in this in this setting, working with, with Dr. Gatlin and Dr. Sink, to, uh, to be able to... Uh, to enjoy my first passion of uh, agriculture and general production and feeding the world and couple that with stuff that will carry over into stock enhancements has been a great, great combination. So I, I think the work we, we do here and the applied nature of it, both to stock enhancement and aquaculture, makes it kind of a, a unique uh, a unique setting for, for production agriculture because there's not, not a lot of free-ranging cattle, uh, wild cattle in the U.S. anymore. So I guess this, uh, this work that can be applied uh, and make an impact both to our, our wild stocks and to to farm raised is is enjoyable yeah. well we, we got to be able to feed feed the nation the yeah. country and, and the world, world. and, and yeah. that's right and, and uh there is no sustainable commercial harvest that can do that so we've got to look look elsewhere absolutely uh, brian did mention also or his comment um reminded me of the fact that um, we also have this uh, collaboration with the inland fisheries that's located one of their 
Field Labs is located here at our facility, and so we've been involved in the neighborhood fishing program with Parks and Wildlife for how many years now? Uh, seven, I yeah, think. Seven, seven or eight years. I'm not sure. I think so. And so that's one of the one of the uses of our pond facilities. We produce, uh, grow out the catfish to a size that is catchable, targeted catchable, for catchable, catchable size mm. for the, the the urban ponds. And wh- what pond does it go? To? That goes ponds. to the the Central Park uh, Pond here in College Station. So we stock. We have 13 stockings during the the warmer months of the year. We stock every every two weeks. Uh, I think the state hatchery program picks up some rainbow trout stocking during the colder months, but uh, the rest of the year we're stocking channel catfish. And this year we had a big average size, about a pound and a half, two pounds. So some really nice opportunities nice. for for local anglers. Yeah. And that's been a, a nice addition for our students, both graduate and undergraduate, to to be involved with some some general production and and to learn learn the the pond dynamics and uh, so that's a good addition to the program we appreciate that that collaboration that's a great program the, not not only the channel catfish stocking but like you mentioned the rainbow trout stocking which i think that starts in mid-december but it's coming up soon it mm-hmm. gives folks that uh, live in these urban areas an opportunity to to go see what fishing is about participate in fishing and take their kids out to get the line wet and get a little tug on the line yeah. absolutely so wonderful in regard to that pond complex, that, that's one thing I failed to, to mention earlier. We'd love to have anybody out that wants to come see what we do. We've got about uh, 12 recirculating systems on online that are comprised of close to 200, 250 experimental units. We've got uh, now uh, 39 ponds on site that we use for our research purposes, and a lot of people don't don't know we even exist uh, here in Aggieland, so uh, we'd, we'd love to... to uh, facilitate any group if, if one of the cca groups wants to come out and see what we do we'd love to love to have them out and show them show them what we do sure they just look yeah. um uh, yeah to find it yeah sorry yeah sorry about that uh, probably the easiest way if you can remember wildlife and fisheries department at a&m there's a facilities tab on the home page for wildlife and fisheries that will lead you to the information and, and again we're the aquacultural research and teaching facility i know that's a mouthful but uh, there's only a couple of facilities lifted un- listed under the 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 uh, a wildlife and fisheries homepage would be one of them and, and my name is brian ray i can even give a phone number if somebody wants to call i'd be happy to happy to have them it's uh, right out there 979-272-3422 yeah give us a call and we'd be glad to uh, to set up a, a tour to show you guys what what we do in this side of the industry uh weekdays yeah we're okay. we're we're here pretty much eight to five monday through friday and uh you know being a live animal facility we're here a lot more than that so <laughs> your your chance of catching us is uh is pretty high if we're not around just leave a message on the machine and i'll get get back with you but i was trying to look when the next aggie game here was so uh uab yes. this weekend oh, i think it's uh, here yeah UA- yep. i think the last two games yep. uab and lsu are no, both home games yeah all right Come watch the Aggies beat the hell out of their next opponent, and then you can come to the <laughs> see the fish farm. The, the fish farm. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all have anything else y'all want to share while we while we're here and have this opportunity to Just engage in the we appreciate uh, what what CCA does and the yeah. and the advocacy of uh, protecting our resources and and just uh, look forward to 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 getting to know uh, our local guys a little bit more. That's that's one thing I'd like to do. But uh, yeah, thank you all for for helping helping the the cause there. Well, you're welcome to come on out with us tonight. If you'd like to, or any other time that Drew's in town, Thank I'm sure you. he'd be happy to have you meet with those guys. Good deal. That would be great. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to, to make ourselves more aware up, um, up to different groups. You know, we, we do have some outreach through extension and so forth, but there may be other opportunities that would, would um, allow us to, again, um, be a bit broader in terms of our outreach and work with other groups and, again, try to, to work together to towards a common goal in terms of protecting our natural resources and providing 
seafood for a, a growing population. Yeah, what you guys are doing matters, and it, it matters to, 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 to our membership, certainly, and, and, and well beyond our membership. And I hope that came across in, in our conversation today. So Thank appreciate the work that you are doing. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for coming on this. Glad to, glad to participate. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. All right.